All right, well, are we ready to do this thing or what? I'm ready. All right, let's pray and then we will dive in. Oh Lord, we know that so much at stake, so much is at stake in doing theology. Lord, what's at stake is not mere intellectual um, affirmation or intellectual understanding of, of uh, some data or knowledge, Lord, but what this is, is grappling with what your very word says. And Lord, we know that the purpose of doctrine and theology, oh Lord, is to transform our lives. Theology is for life. Oh Lord, and what I long for, oh Lord, what I long for in the lives of my people is that they would take the most lofty, exalted thoughts about you and they would connect them to the everyday issues in the trenches of life, that they would see the profound practicality of the kinds of doctrines we're going to discuss over the next month or month and a half or whatever it is. And and so, Lord, I just pray that you would use your word in powerful, striking, profound, remarkable, and, and lasting ways in their lives so that they would... Uh, at the end, when we're all done, I pray that they would more, not just appreciate, but prize the salvation purchased and paid for, uh, for them by you, Christ. That they would uh, prize and delight and treasure you above all things, O oh God. That they would see more and more the specific way that you have worked in their lives. Not just generally that you just saved them in general, but specifically, precisely how you intervened and did the absolutely miraculous and supernatural to save them and draw them to your son. And so ask for your help, Lord. Uh, supernatural work requires supernatural power. And what we're about to do tonight requires supernatural power. It's profoundly supernatural. So Lord, give them profound focus, supernatural focus, laser-like precision in their thinking. Enable me to teach in a way that brings great glory to you, O Christ, and great benefit to their souls. So Lord, we thank you so much for this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, thanks for, thanks for coming. It's good, good to have you. Appreciate you guys so much. I love what I do. It's a, it's a privilege, an absolute unbelievable privilege that I get to be a pastor and preach and teach God's word. Um, I can't believe I, you, know, you, you free me up financially to do that, so a thousand thank yous. But uh, tonight begins the first of a five-part series uh, known as the Doctrines of Sovereign Grace. How, how many of you have read, uh, just so I can get some background here, how many of you have read of... Uh, books on the doctrines of grace or anything like, does anyone have any exposure to this? So good. So some of you have some, some done, done some work in this. Um, if not, no problem. But all the doctrines of grace are, are essentially a summary of God's sovereign grace in salvation. That, that's what it is. Another way to put it, the, the doctrines of grace are really just a summary way to describe the great lengths to which God went to save you from eternal woe and despair. That's what we're really dealing with. So what that does is that changes the whole atmosphere of this whole thing, doesn't it? I mean, we are not playing games here. We are talking about what God did to intervene in your lives and rescue you from eternal destruction. So this is a really big deal. This is what the doctrines of grace are. And, And even if you have no idea what these five doctrines are, in all likelihood, you already believe them. Very likely. And and if not... Uh, you believe at least some of them or most of them, and when we're done, I hope you believe all of them because I do believe that they are biblical. And I want you to accept and embrace the doctrines we're going to discuss not only as biblical but but also as as beautiful and profoundly practical. When when I'm excited about what we're going to do over the next five 
or six sessions, we will see how this goes, is that the connections to practical everyday life that these doctrines are going to have. I mean, we're going to discuss marriage and parenting and evangelism and, and all kinds of things in relation to these doctrines. So this is not at all going to be some merely academic you know, sort of affair where we just sort of, you know, tickle our intellectual fancies. I mean, no, we're really going to connect the dots here to real life because d- theology is about real life. Um, so again, th- these doctrines are, are hauntingly relevant and of earth-shattering significance. Um, and, and it's true. I just, again, I just want you to know, um, are we going to climb the Himalayas of theology? We are. Is the climb going to be steep? and uphill and mentally exhausting, it is. But I just want you to know that the view you get when you reach the top is, is absolutely life-changing, and there's no going back. What is seen cannot be unseen, and we're going to see some powerful things in God's Word. So these doctrines are not just a few kind of, you know, cherry-picked doctrines. No, in reality, the, the way to think about the doctrines of grace is that they really are, in a sense, the story of Christianity itself. Like, if you understand the doctrines of grace, you will understand what God is doing in human history. Um, you know, and, and, and another thing you need to know is that what's at stake in these doctrines is your very joy. We're, we're, I think the theme that's going to run throughout all of these five or six or seven or ten sessions is, is going to be the, the theme of joy and how these doctrines are really a, uh, a way to access your highest joy in God. Because again, ultimate triumphant joy is not found in our circumstances, but in the soul-clobbering doctrines of the Bible. I believe that with all my heart. So let me, let me orient you to the doctrines of grace by asking you some questions. Not ones that you answer out loud, but more for contemplation here. And, and, and all these have to do, sort of have a, an angle of joy to think of. So just think about these, and each one of these point us to the doctrines of grace. For instance, what if the essence of sin, the essence of what sin is, is not just badness, but blindness to beauty and deadness to joy? Have you ever thought about sin in those terms before? It's not just doing naughty things that you shouldn't do. It's, it's blindness to beauty and deadness to joy. In other words, we give in to sin because our eyes have not been opened to see what true beauty and satisfaction is. Another question. What if spiritual death, so when before Christ saved us, we were spiritually dead, right? What if spiritual death ultimately meant that we craved spiritual poison and the inability to taste what truly satisfies. Think about non-Christians that you know. What does it mean to be a non-Christian? To be a non-Christian means that we, that, that we crave spiritual poison and the inability to taste what truly satisfies. We, we talk with non-Christians and we beat our head against a wall. It's like, how could you not see the transcendent beauty of Christ? How could you not see this? Well, because they're blind. How could you not taste this? Taste this and see that it is good. How can you not taste this? Because because they have the inability to taste what truly satisfies, unless, unless God does something miraculous and awakens them. Another question. What if God, from all eternity, had been planning a kind of pleasure so satisfying that no eye had seen, no ear had heard, nor had it entered into any human imagination. What if that were the case? 
In other words, what if we oriented our entire way of thinking about the plan of salvation that God from all eternity planned infinite joy for people? There's another one. What if salvation was not at all some sort of last-minute, willy-nilly, last-ditch kind of attempt to try to save sinners? And what if salvation ultimately meant that your infinite joy in Jesus Christ had been predestined for you before the ages began? In other words, what if we, we reoriented our thoughts about, you know, how God chooses people in terms of infinite joy? Infinite joy that had been predestined for us before the ages began. There's another one. What if the death of Christ wasn't merely to get our sins forgiven? What if it wasn't merely to help us escape from hell? What if it wasn't merely to get us into heaven? But what if the death of Christ was ultimately designed to remove every obstacle that prevented you from enjoying God as your highest treasure forever? Doesn't that alter our thinking about the death of Christ just a little bit? It's, yes, it includes forgiveness of sins, but it's not only that. It is escape from the eternal destruction that we so deserve, but it's not only that. It is getting to heaven and seeing God, but it's not only that. What it is, is everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure in God forever. What if that were the case? Here's another one, and this one's kind of tricky. But what if the death of Christ didn't merely provide the possibility of my salvation? In other words, what if the death of Christ wasn't this theoretical thing that provided the possibility of being saved, but what if the death of Christ actually secured for you, in particular, indestructible joy in God forever? Does that question make sense? Because there's a couple ways of thinking about the death of Christ. There's sort of this view of, well, it was sort of this theoretical, Christ died for everybody, but for nobody in particular. And then there's this other view of the death of Christ that says when Christ died, he died for you in particular. And in that transaction on a bloody cross, actually secured for you in particular, the salvation predestined for you by God. What if that were the case? I'm pulling out the big guns early, aren't we? Here's another one. What if getting converted, getting saved, meant so much more than merely turning over a new leaf or asking Jesus into our heart? But what if being converted meant being awakened to the superior beauty of Christ which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin? I mean, what if we reoriented our thinking about being converted in those terms? Here's another one. What if being saved meant that God was committed, so committed to preserve you and sustain you by his power to make sure that you held on to superior pleasures rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin that would destroy you? In other words, what if God's work in salvation was not some sort of like, well, you know, I saved them and, you know, once saved, always saved and, you know, they're off which once saved, always saved, is true, but it just needs nuancing. What if salvation was a moment-by-moment work of God in our lives where he caused us to persevere to the end? And how that persevering looked like is that we we chose superior pleasures rather than fleeting pleasures. So I know all this is kind of a mouthful. I get, this, is, this is kind of hard to think about, but y- y- you get it. The, the, the point is, 
the doctrines of grace are all about the things I just described. See, see when, you, when you hear these kinds of things, that's what we mean when we talk about the doctrines of grace. See, the point is, uh, why don't we put it this way? Um, you could take all these questions and summarize it like this. What if I told you that someone else was infinitely more concerned for your joy than you could ever be? That's what, that's what I mean when I, when I talk about the doctrines of grace. And what if I told you that this person had been planning your highest joy before you had ever even been born? That radically changes things, doesn't it? It changes our whole outlook on God's involvement in our lives, that, that the Father forever had been planning our highest joy, which is found only in Him, because those are the terms in which we should think about our salvation. Highest joy forever. And that was God's plan for all eternity. This is profound stuff. So everything that I just described is the doctrines of grace. But we have to ask the question, okay, well, what are specifically the doctrines of grace? As I mentioned, there there are five of these. Um, You know, guys have different uh, sort of versions. Some guys have six or seven doctrines of grace. Um, But uh, but the the five doctrines of grace, it's, it's really this. The doctrines of grace are a summary way to describe the sovereignty of grace in the salvation of sinners. That's what they are. It's a, it's a summary way to describe the sovereignty of grace in the salvation of sinners. I'm in part two of my notes, by the way. I have no idea what page that is, but part two. In other words, theologians back in the 1600s, they, they did us a real solid. Uh, and basically what they did is they, they formed a condensed, packaged way of displaying the work of God in our salvation. They, they, they looked at the Bible as a whole and they grouped together, okay, these are the five sort of main, overarching, mountaintop things that God did to get people saved. Now, these five doctrines that we're going to look at, they don't say everything there is to say about salvation, but again, they, they serve to put God most conspicuously in his rightful place as the all-sufficient giver of grace, and they put us rightly in our place as the needy beneficiaries of that grace. That's what these doctrines do. So what are they? What are the five doctrines of grace? And then... Uh, is that all right if I erase this? You good? Yeah. The number? Okay. All right, let's, let's test you here. Now, don't look at the notes. Don't cheat here. Okay, no cheaters. There's a proverb about crows pecking your eyes out, so I'll, I will pray that over you if you peek here. Um, okay, so what are, what are, you don't have to get them in order, but, and if you already know them like the back of your hand, then, then don't, don't answer them. Let other people answer. But what are the doctrines of grace? In no particular order, what do we have? What's that? Is it by scripture? Solas? Are we talking about the Oh, no, no, not the solas. I love the solas, though. But, but you know, it's kind of in the same category. But um, what's that? Total inability. Total inability. Good. Inability or depravity. Good. That'll be session three. Okay, what's another one? Unconditional election, good. Forgive the chicken scratch up here. All block letters, that's how I roll. Okay, what else? Limited atonement, okay, so limited, or some people, like me, particular atonement. 
good. Okay, what else? Is that what is going on here? Shame on you! Come on! All right, well, all right, what's, what are the last two then? Perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. I'll put that one last. Perse- oh. It's always, I know, it's like, come on, guys. No, I, I, I didn't care. I was fine. Perseverance of the saints. Okay, and then the last one? Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. All right. Yeah, you didn't want crows in your eyes. You guys were, I just frightened you with that one. Um, okay, good. Well, let me just give you a summary of these. I mean, you probably already basically know what they are, but here's, here's what we're talking about. The doctrines of grace are this. Uh, unconditional election. Uh, unconditional election is the truth that God chose particular souls from every nation to be saved through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. That's, that's all election is. That's all it is. Right? The, the truth that God chose particular souls from every nation before time to be saved by the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. Uh, total depravity or total inability. Uh, that means that we were born spiritually dead slaves to sin. Unwilling and unable on our own by ourselves to repent believe or be saved without the sovereign intervention and soul resurrecting work of God. I mean, feel that. That's where we were. That's where we were before Christ saved us. Spiritually dead slaves to sin. Unwilling and unable on our own by ourselves to repent, believe, or be saved without the sovereign intervention and soul resurrecting work of God. Particular atonement or limited atonement. Um, uh, You could put it this way. This will be different than what's in your notes. But particular atonement means God not only chose all who would believe, but that Christ died for those whom the Father chose in particular. That's, That's what that's teaching. Another way to put it is the Father chose some before time from every nation and to whom he gave to his Son for whom the Son died and purchased with his blood. So we see that in places like John 17 and Revelation 5, 9 and, and many other places where God not, the, the Father not only chose particular people, but he gave them to his Son as a love gift before time. And the plan was is that eventually the Son would come and he would die for those whom the Father chose and purchased them in particular with his blood. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's like, well, what about the other people? Well, we'll get there. Uh, number four, irresistible grace. I love this. I love this. Uh, this is the sovereign miracle that awakened us from spiritual death and opened our eyes to see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is, thus enabling us to repent and believe and thus obtain uh, by grace, the salvation secured by Christ, which is a total mouthful, but really all that is is saying what the hymn says. You remember? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Remember what hymn that's from? What hymn is that from? And can it be 
that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood. Unbelievable. What he just described there is what irresistible grace is. It's the sovereign miracle of, miracle of opening our eyes to see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. I mean, think about it. There once was a time when you didn't give a rip about Christ. And then the next day you did. What happened in between? Irresistible grace happened in between. That's why. And then five, perseverance of the saints. What this is, is the invincible work of God to keep us and preserve us through his word, through all affliction and suffering and temptation to receive our predestined inheritance of everlasting joy in God forever. Say that again. Perseverance of the saints is the invincible work of God to keep us and preserve us through his word, through all affliction and suffering and temptation to receive our predestined inheritance of everlasting joy in God forever. In other words, you are saved and you stay saved, not merely because God says you're saved, but because he proactively works in your life to keep you saved. So we'll talk about how that all intersects with human responsibility uh, as we go along. Now, obviously, all these have different kind of names and labels, you know, total inability, depravity, radical depravity, pervasive depravity, sovereign election, divine election. But no matter what you call them, the, the meaning and substance is the same. God alone is the architect. He alone is the author. He alone is the artist. And he alone is the one who accomplishes our salvation. You could put it this way. Our salvation was planned and predestined by God the Father. It was purchased and paid for by God the Son. And it is preserved and protected by God the Holy Spirit. Amazing. Now, I, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, now hold on a second. Are, are, you, are you talking about Calvinism? Is that, is that what you're talking about here? Because you, this is a total bait and switch. You told us, you told us that you were going to teach a class, a, a seminar about God's work in salvation. And now you're teaching us about Calvinism. To which I reply, no, no, I am teaching you a, a seminar, a five series, whatever seminar on God's work in salvation. And it just happens to be what some people call Calvinism. What's that? Or, or reform theology, yeah. Now, in full disclosure, I'm, I am a Calvinist of the seven-point variety, if that means anything to you. Um, but I just want you to know, I was, a, I was a Calvinist, or what some people call a Calvinist, years before I ever read Calvin. Or years before I ever even read a book on Calvinism. I was not raised reading Calvin. I really believe, I really believe with all my heart that I arrived where I am at theologically because the evidence of the text led me there. I wasn't raised in any sort of, maybe this label means something to you, maybe it doesn't. I was not raised with any sort of reformed, you know, as a kid. I just didn't have that. I, I got saved at 19 years old. And, and I remember just reading the Bible and seeing things like, whoa, God chose particular people. That's wild. What does that mean? Whoa, who, for whom did Christ die? Did he die for every single person without exception? Or did he die for a particular people? What's going on here? What does the text say? So I wrestled with those things even before seminary. Um, and, and here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not opposed necessarily to being called a Calvinist. Um, my, my problem with that is, is that Calvinism makes it sound like that Calvin is the source of these doctrines, which of course he's not. 
Because, because 13 centuries before Calvin, a guy named Augustine affirmed all of the doctrines that we're going to discuss in this seminar. He affirmed all of them, every single one of them. He, he talked about them. You know, do you know who Augustine is? Augustine of Hippo in the 4th and 5th century. He affirmed all these things. And, and just so you know, um, you know, 300 years before Augustine, Christ himself spoke about every single one of these things as well. I mean, seriously, Christ talked about every single one of these kinds of issues. And before him, Moses preached irresistible grace in Deuteronomy 30. Um, David proclaimed total depravity in Psalm 53. Isaiah preached particular atonement in chapter 53. Ezekiel described uh, irresistible grace in chapter 36. It's all there in the text, which is the only thing we really give a hoot about anyway. Agreed? Agreed. So, again, the name Calvinism could give the impression that our allegiance is to a man rather than to the scriptures. Although, although if you haven't read Calvin, I really suggest that you do. The, the, I mean, the dude was uh, so ahead of his time. And here's the thing about, do I tell this story now? Is this even relevant to what I'm doing now? Here's the thing about Calvin, I'll tell you. What I love about him, you know, he's got, you know, we tend to think, oh, well, it's like this theologian and his ivory tower and, you know, writing all this divisive stuff. Here's the thing about him. You know what he was? He was a pastor of three to four hundred French refugees who, who snuck their way into Geneva because they were getting martyred in France. That was his congregation. People whose, whose relatives and whose former pastors had been burned alive. And so this dude wrote his big book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and that, he did theology you know, with the smell of burning flesh about him. Right? That's, that's what we're dealing with. So he was not playing games and just doing theology for the heck of it. And so again, because titles comes with all sorts of assumptions and baggage, I prefer the doctrines of grace. Um, so again, our, our highest allegiance has to be to the text. But if I may be so bold... I believe that if you take the text at face value, and if you believe what, what the Bible actually has to say without any sort of, sort of preconceived theology of what you would like the text to say, and if you don't force it onto the text, I believe that what you're going to walk away with in the end will be what some people call Calvinism. I believe if you take the text at face value, I know that's kind of in your face a little bit. I don't mean it to be uh, quite sound so you know, with such moxie, but, but I just want you to know that I believe if you submit what the scriptures have to say about salvation, you will believe the doctrines of grace. If you take the text at face value, I think you'll hold a view that the God, the sovereignty of God is comprehensive and meticulous over every detail of life, which it is. If you take the text at face value, I believe that you'll hold the beauty and the supremacy of God as the deepest value of life and, and the purpose of all his, history. If you, if you take the text at face value, I, you, I think you're going to come to the conclusion that the Father singled out and selected a particular number of souls from every nation to be saved by the death of Christ. If you take the text at face value, you will believe that you could not have believed in Christ unless God awakened you from the dead first. If you take the text at face value, I think you're going to believe that the death of Christ was not some theoretical thing where he died for everybody, but for nobody in particular. But you'll see that the death of Christ was for a particular people and that he purchased for them in full the priceless treasure of salvation. If you take the text at face value, I think you're going to believe that the only reason why you woke up believing this morning was because of the sovereign power of God. So I think we have to, um, and let's do this now. Um, 
since we're talking about grace, the doctrines of grace, I think we need to define what grace is. And, and let me hear from you. What, what are, you know, what are sort, of, sort of the default, helpful uh, definitions of grace that you've heard in your life? What is grace? What have you heard? Favor. Yeah, favor. Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Good. His mercies are new every morning. Good, yeah. Lamentations 3.22. Yeah, very good. His mercies are new every morning. What else? Wow, good, yeah, Christ, God's riches at Christ's expense. Good, yeah, very good. Any other thoughts? Grace. I think unmerited favor is, is a good starting point. I think, that, I think that's helpful. Um, and, and I think, you, or you could put it this way, it is the prerogative of the giver to show favor and give gifts to an undeserved recipient without respect to uh, or even in spite of their lack of merit or achievements. How's that for a mouthful? Right? Does that make sense? So the prerogative of the giver, the giver is no, un, under no obligation to give you anything, but he does anyway, even despite who you are and what you've done, and even despite your lack of achievements uh, or merit. And so there, there, I would say this. Here, here's my favorite definition of grace. God's grace is God's pleasure to save sinners from what they most deserve and give them what they least deserve, which is himself to be enjoyed forever and ever. There's my definition of grace. That it's God's pleasure to save sinners from what they most deserve and give them what they least deserve, namely himself to be enjoyed as their highest treasure forever and ever. Or as Piper puts it in The Pleasures of God, grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. How's that? That is, that is unbelievable. You could, you could chew on that for, for hours. And I think when you stand back and look at the plan of salvation as a whole, I think you could expand on that, that definition of grace. So here's my expanded definition of grace. Grace is God's sovereign pleasure, even in eternity past, to single out and select a particular number of souls to believe and be saved through the death of Christ and grant them eternal enjoyment of his worth and beauty forever. In fact, I believe that's my summary of what's happening in the plan of salvation. It's his sovereign pleasure, even in eternity past, to single out and select a particular number of souls to be saved through the sin-bearing death of Christ and to grant them the eternal enjoyment of his worth and beauty forever. That's salvation. That's what grace is. And I've got a couple texts in there. And your notes to, that kind of talk about grace. And by sovereign grace, all, all I mean by sovereign grace is an act that only God alone can perform or accomplish. That's what sovereign grace is. It, it's something that God alone can perform or accomplish. You see, I, I want you to believe that, that every phase, stage, aspect of our salvation, everything from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future and everything in between, that all of that is a sovereign act of God, that that God alone could perform the things that happen to us. 
And he does that in such a way that does not minimize or cancel or, or mitigate our personal responsibility at all. We make real choices. And yet, and yet God's grace is such that nothing we do or nothing for which we are responsible has any meritorious value. Does that make sense? So that's, that's God's grace, and his, that's his sovereign grace. Okay, so I'm going to skip, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of stuff, verses in there that talk about God's grace, um, and, and then I want to go to part five. It, I think it should be part five in your notes there. Um, I want to ask the question, why should we study the doctrines of grace? Like, why, why is this worth our time? Uh, because I really believe, as a, as a pastor, my job is to equip the saints and, and to give you things that will help you uh, stay strong and, and persevere and, and grow in your faith and be able to withstand the, the, the kind of assault and persecution that, that, that one day will be coming on America. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in 10 years, maybe not in 50 years, but it will come. It will come. Assyria fell, Babylon fell, Persia fell, Greece fell, Rome fell, America will fall. And one of these days, it will not be so comfy um, to be a Christian. And, and, and the doctrines of grace will be the kinds of things that sustain you for that. So, so why should we study the doctrines of grace? Like, 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 why is this worth our time? We could be doing anything. We could be, be doing parenting or evangelism or, or marriage or anything that would be plenty worth our time. Why are we doing this stuff? There's no way we can comprehend this sacrifice what incredible gift it was. Yeah. If we don't understand grace. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, it gets down to the very foundational things we believe as Christians. Right? We've got to get this. It's not just enough. I mean, it, it is enough to know that, okay, Christ died for me. That's great. But, but there, there's riches, unending riches surrounding all that that means, and that will help us. Well, I've got 12 reasons. 12 reasons. I don't know if I'm going to give you all these. Did you have something, Jeanette? Agreed. Insightful, really insightful. You're right, you're right. Because one of the things, we'll get to this when we get to election and particular atonement, but people will say, well, if election is true, then you can't, there's no point in sharing the gospel with people. Well, if particular atonement is true, there's no reason to share the gospel with people. And I say, it's just the opposite. It empowers and fuels our evangelism. It gives us courage. It guarantees that our evangelism cannot fail. That's what's so glorious about these. That's, that's really good. Uh, Twelve reasons. Maybe I'll get to all of them. Maybe I won't. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how I feel. But uh, here's 12 reasons why I think we should study the doctrines of grace. These will go fast. Uh, number one, we should study the doctrines of grace because these are the cure get this now, to church-weakening, soul-shrinking, man-centeredness that just fills American churches today. That, uh, these, these doctrines are just obliterate man-centeredness, which I am all about that. What's, what's really interesting to me is that most people's conception of Christianity is Christianity and the church and Christ are pretty much about the improvement of my personal quality of life. That's Christianity for most people. I'm a Christian, so you know, my life should be happier and, and I should be free from pain and, and difficulty and, and it's just about my 
the improvement of my personal quality of life. And, 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 and America is a very strange an- anomaly to me, where in America you can, use, you can use all of the language of Christianity, and yet the focus of your life still be fundamentally the self, which, which is very strange to me. I mean, I suffer from it too. I'm, I'm American, just like everybody else, and so, well, except for some. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, so, so really, the doctrines of grace are the theological antidote to our obsession with the self and helps us cry out with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. Number two, we need to study these doctrines because number two, these doctrines will make you doctrinally precise and doctrinal precision is not a deterrent from, but as a means to enjoying God supremely. So if you hear that doctrinal precision, there's nothing to be afraid of. That is something to be pursued. See, when we are doctrinally vague or ambiguous, I will argue our affections for him will not rise as high as they could or should because doctrinal precision is not a deterrent from, but a means to enjoying God supremely. Number three, we should study these doctrines because these doctrines get to the heart of our deepest need as blind, dead, damned, and helpless sinners. Because that's what all of us were before Christ, without him. Blind, dead, damned, and helpless. And these doctrines get to the, get to the, uh, the heart of our deepest need. Number four. These doctrines, I love this, these doctrines, we should study these because these doctrines help us better see and savor each work of the person of the Trinity, the the work of each person in the Trinity in our salvation. In other words, we study these doctrines, we will grow to understand the Trinity better. So I really believe that you can't talk about the work of the Trinity without talking about these doctrines eventually. And you can't talk about these doctrines without talking about the Trinity eventually. They, they intersect and overlap. It's, it's beautiful. Number five, we should study these doctrines because these doctrines most explicitly put Christ and his substitutionary death on open display as the centerpiece of our lives. We are Christians, right? We are not deists. You know, we are not... Uh, um, you know, we, we are not mere, you know, whatever. I mean, we, we, are, uh, we are Christians, which means he is the centerpiece of our life and affections and of our message. And these doctrines put him supremely on display. Number six, we should study these doctrines because they are inseparably connected with all other doctrines in the Bible. I mean, the, the overlap of these doctrines to the you know, en- entirety of the Bible is absolutely incredible. I, in fact, there are very few pages of the Bible where you won't run, run across these kinds of things. And I believe if you, if you are going to minimize one of these or minimize these doctrines, you're going to minimize other doctrines to which they are connected because that's the thing about the Bible. It is a tapestry Right? It's, not a, it's not a wall of bricks that you can knock out one. It's like, well, I don't like that, so I'm going to knock that out. It's like, well, this is a tapestry. You pull on a thread and it connects to other doctrines as well. No, I'm not saying that like, you know, all of these, you have to believe all of these. These are at the same level as like you have to believe in the deity of Christ. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they are pervasive throughout the Bible. Number seven. We should study these doctrines because since they get to the heart of our deepest need and since they are the centerpiece of salvation and since they most explicitly put Christ on display, they become the most explicit fuel for our worship. 
You see, the reason why we struggle with worship, and I'm not talking about merely singing on Sunday mornings. Uh, I mean that, that our worship and enjoyment of God has to be fueled by big thoughts of God. You see, the secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push yourself deeper than ever into who God is. And that's what these doctrines do. Number eight, we should study these doctrines because to experience God fully, we need to know not just how he acts in general, but specifically, or how he saves sinners specifically. So we need to know how he acts, not just generally, but we need to know how he saves sinners specifically. Now listen to what Piper says. This quote may or may not be in, in your notes here. Uh, I'm on point eight here, my number eight. But uh, Piper says, clear knowledge of God from the Bible is the kindling that sustains the fires of affection for God. And probably the most crucial kind of knowledge is the knowledge of what God is like in salvation. That is what the five points of Calvinism is all about. Not the power and sovereignty of God in general, but his power and sovereignty in the way he saves people. So this is immediately relevant to us as those who have received salvation. Number nine. We should study these doctrines not because we have allegiance to Calvin or a Calvinism as a system, but because these doctrines are a helpful summary uh, of what the scriptures say about the sovereign work of God in salvation. Now, we covered that. I probably didn't need to say that. Number 10, uh, we should study these doctrines because these are one of the clearest displays of the sovereignty of God. Right? I mean, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, one of the clearest displays that he is sovereign and has absolute undisputed dominion is in doctrines like this. Uh, number 11, uh, we should study these doctrines because these doctrines help us see that our deepest assurance, that, our, that these doctrines are the deepest assurance that our salvation can never be lost. And then number 12, we should study these doctrines uh, because uh, these doctrines... Uh, put what our salvation is in its most proper perspective. Here's what I mean by that. Again, we, we, need, to, we need to move beyond the thought that salvation is just about forgiveness of sins. It, it, it is that. It includes that, but it's not only that. We need to expand our horizons to see that salvation is so much more than not going to hell. Right? I mean, that, it is that, but, but it's not only that. And we need to see that salvation is so much more than merely getting to heaven. It is that, but it's so much more than that. You see, salvation in its essence is getting access to God as the deepest and highest prize and treasure in the universe. That's the issue. So if someone asks you, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, we get to heaven. That's true, but you, you have given them such a, you know, such a, a, a bland picture of, of what that means. You need to say the re- what it means to be a Christian is that I am reconciled to God in whose presence is fullness of joy and in whose right hand there are pleasures forever. That is it. That is what salvation is. So for instance, if someone asked you, if they said, okay, if you could go to heaven and you could have eternal sunshine forever, which is kind of like what San Diego is, and you could have all the food you wanted and you could have, you know, endless delights 
and, and friends and family with you forever and no death and no disease and no sickness and no sorrow, no suffering. You could have all that stuff, but, but God were not there. Could you be happy? Don't answer, just think. Could you be happy in heaven if God were not there? Depending on how you answer that question is very revealing. You see, what makes the gospel good news is that the gospel gets us to God. And that's what these doctrines are about, pointing us to our deepest need. And our deepest need is God himself. I've got this unbelievably scathing quote from from Piper, and you can, uh, I'll read it. It's, it's, It's worth our time. He says, propitiation... He's going to list of things that, that our salvation includes. Propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, imputation, sanctification, liberation, healing, heaven. None of these is good news. Except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of Him. If we believe all these things have happened to us, but do not embrace them for the sake of getting to God, they have not happened to us. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. That's unbelievable. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. That's the milieu and and, and atmosphere that I want to surround this issue when we talk about the doctrines of grace. That's what's at stake. It's everlasting joy in God. Well, in the last couple pages, you've got uh, recommended resources, um, and I've listed them, you know, one star, two stars, three stars. Each star grows in its, its, uh, uh, its difficulty. So you notice I've got one star is short, sweet, and simple. Two stars is it's work, but so worth it. And then three is tough, chewy, but it will change your life. And the hardest books are usually the ones that change your life. Just read slow like I do. I can't help but read slow. So there's some resources for you. In fact, um, uh, letter D there, the Joy Project. Do you see that? Is that in your notes there, those resources? Uh, The Joy Project is going to be one of the books of the month for next month. And it's going to cover these doctrines in a really winsome and exciting and interesting way. It's actually, it's even a funny book. I mean, a theology book that's funny. Who, Who knew? So it'll be really, really good. Okay, all right, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't you stand, stretch your legs, get some food, get, get something to drink, and we'll resume in five minutes, okay? All right, session one, part two. Part two. Uh, let me see here. Actually, I wasn't ready. Hold on, hold on. All right, good. Well, now we're going to begin um, more or less talking about the doctrine of unconditional election. So... Yeehaw, giddy up. Uh, let's, let's do this thing. Here's the catch, though, about unconditional election. There's a, there's a, there's a bit of a catch to this doctrine. Is that if, if we truly want to understand what election is and what it means, 
Uh, in other words, if we want to be transformed by the deepest significance of what unconditional election actually is, then we must first begin not by discussing the doctrine itself, but we have to discuss it in relation to the plan of salvation as a whole. By the way, this is not in your notes. This is all for free. So I, I you know, you, you owe me. No, yeah, I wasn't sure what I was going to cover tonight and how much time I'd have. So, um, so this is all for free. And you will get everything that I'm giving you via word of mouth. I, you will have in hand um, next session. So this, this will be a good time and, and, and this won't be hard to, to follow along. So does that make sense? The, the only way to truly understand unconditional election in particular is if we understand how it relates to the plan of salvation as a whole. In other words, we, if we want to get election, we have to understand the drama of salvation unfolding throughout scripture and throughout history. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to take the next few minutes and we're just going to talk about the, the plan of salvation. We're going to do kind of Bible drill sort of stuff and I'll have you turn to, turn to certain texts. And, and we're going to just look in, at the comprehensive whole. Because here's the thing about the Bible is that uh, the Bible it is a story. Now, it's a, it's a true story. It's not, it's not a Brothers Grimm thing. I mean, it's a true story. But really what it is, it's a drama unfolding in human history. So th- there is a beginning There is an eternal ending in paradise, and there's this captivating plot unfolding in the middle. And it serves us well to be able to to understand and articulate and and be gripped by what this plan of salvation is. And and although I'm not crazy about the mere summary of, of, you know, uh, there's there's a certain way of summarizing the plan of salvation. I'm not crazy about it, but, but it'll help us get started. So you could basically divide the entire plan of salvation into four points. So these four things will define and, and unfold the plan of salvation. Number one is creation, right? So if you're going to summarize the entire drama of salvation, it begins with creation. Uh, number two, does anyone know what comes next? As far as the, the major events that summarize the, the fall, right? Exactly. So we've got creation, the fall. What about number three? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of something particular, sorry. Uh, f- flood, that's true, but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's, like a, there's four of them. Um, and this is found in a bunch of books, so I don't know how you'd, you'd know what I was thinking, but I'll just give it to you. The third one is redemption. And then the fourth one is, what did I put it? Restoration. There's different ways to call the last one restoration. Now, I don't like this because it's, it, I don't like it as much as others because it's kind of general, big picture, not nuanced enough. But at the very least, it gives us a, a big picture, broad brushstroke image of the plan of salvation as a whole, right? It begins with creation, then there's fall, then there's redemption. And what is redemption referring to? Yes, yeah, referring to salvation, right? So it's referring to Christ and all that he accomplished. And restoration is referring to what? the second coming, and then everything that follows after that, right? The whole culmination of the entire plan. So that's, the, that's the, the plan of salvation most broadly defined. And I think that's a good way to help kind of summarize your Bibles. Like, okay, what's your Bible about? The Bible is about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Okay, that's helpful. That's some helpful stuff. Now let's do, let's do a little theology magic here. I, I, I love this kind of stuff. I love biblical theology and, and discussing and, and just seeing what the Bible actually says. Now, now get a load of this. Um, 
we, over here, here's the beginning of the Bible. We've got a creation, right? Isn't it interesting to you that if you go to the very end of the Bible, guess what you have? You have the new creation, right? Here, you have the heavens and the earth. Agreed? What do you have over here? The new heavens and the new earth, right? New heavens and earth. Okay? And then here's what you have. You have you have man in the image of God. I'll just put man image so you know what I'm saying. Right? You have man in the image of God over here in Genesis 1. But what do you have over on this side? Don't you have the son of man? And doesn't Colossians 1.15 call him the image of the invisible God? Oh, isn't that interesting? Do you see the recapitulation on the other side? The, the beginning mirrored in the end? You have man created in the image of God who rules creation at the beginning. And then at the end of the Bible, you have the son of man who, who Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. And what does he do at the end? He rules creation. Oh, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, so here you have, you have Adam, right? And he, is, he was created to rule. Agreed? So uh, God creates man. Let him rule and subjugate the earth and, and have dominion over it. Okay, what do we have over here? We have the second Adam. Isn't that interesting? And what does he do? He rules over the earth. I mean, you've got Psalm 110. You've got Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. You've, you've got uh, um, all sorts of uh, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, all these texts that talk about the, the Messiah will come and rule the earth. So you see Adam who rules, and you have the second Adam at the end who rules. Remember second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15? Pretty interesting. You have... Uh, I can't even read my own writing here. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you've got, you've got man on, on one side created to multiply and fill the earth, right? So man multiplies and fills the earth. Well, that didn't go so well. But what you have over here on this side is you have, and then here's what's interesting, is that, is that in that creation mandate, God creates man and woman in his own image, and he tells them to multiply and fill the earth. So the idea is going to be that, that man, as God's image, reflects and displays who God is, right? I mean, that, that's the whole point of that thing. Man in God's image reflects and portrays and displays who God is. We are multiplying applying mirrors that reveal who God is. Wasn't it interesting to you that on the other side, there are these promises, these Old Testament promises that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. So knowledge, glory, fill the earth. Okay, there's that. I just think this is so, so fascinating, so interesting to me. Over here, you've got a marriage, right? Genesis chapter 2. What do you have over here? Bride of Christ. 
you have a marriage, right? You have the bride of Christ. You have a marriage over here. Isn't that fascinating? And there's all sorts of things exactly like this where we see, where we see the, the beginning reflected and redone in the end. It's remarkable, the coherence of it all. And there's also other things too, like, for instance, you know, there's all sorts of interesting themes running all throughout the Bible, mountains and rivers. Like, for instance, uh, a river, and and when they're described in the text, they're literal rivers, but you have a river in the beginning flowing out of Eden, right? Isn't it interesting to you that Ezekiel 40 through 49, 48, describes a river flowing from the temple? River, a, a literal river. It's really there, but but it's a it's a graphic picture to describe the presence of God among His people. There's things like that everywhere. Just remarkable coherences in the Bible. See, my point in unfolding all this is to help you see that that the Bible is a tapestry. It's a drama. It's a drama of salvation. It's remarkable. It isn't some sort of, I mean, the way our Bibles are, are organized, our English Bibles, it's kind of like, like, what's going on? And you know, there's no real kind of sense of, of a, of a storyline to it all, but there is a storyline. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's all there. And it's, and it's incredible. It's breathtaking stuff. And there are, there are thousands of these coherences all over the Bible. Really, really fascinating. So this is, this, this, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you feel so bold, how would you summarize the, the plan of salvation? What would you say? Like, like what, what's God doing in human history? What is the plan? What would you say? Put it this way. If, if this whole thing were made into a movie, what would be the synopsis of the movie? What would you say? What's it about? God has taken us back to the garden. We're going back to Eden. Yes. Yes. Which I'm so glad you brought that up. That was one of the ones I forgot. Over here, we have Eden, and there's one, two, three places. One, two in Ezekiel, one in Isaiah, I think Isaiah chapter 60, that talks about that when Christ returns, he is going to redo Eden. He's going to redo it. So God rules in a place, in a specific place. So yeah, that, that's really good, Rich. Excellent. Excellently done. What's the synopsis of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible? What else would you say? Even if it's just pieces of it, what would you say? What is this thing about? Do you want to try it? Do it. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. A, a, a history, a story of God and his people, which I'm really glad you brought that up because I think one of the most important, probably the most sacred and precious, it's hard to quantify things like this, but anyway, well, one of the most sacred and, and precious statements in the entire Bible is, they will be my people and I will be their God. Stated first in, I believe, Genesis 14, 15, or 17. I can't remember now. But anyway, there's this promise where, where God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And he keeps repeating it and he keeps repeating it. And then you get to Ezekiel and he keeps repeating it again and again and again. And they're, they're in total exile. And he says, look, a time is coming when you are going to be my people and I will be your God. And guess which book it finally appears? Revelation 21. 
the, the new Jerusalem comes down and it says, he shall be their people and they, he shall be their God and they shall be his people. So that, that's the most precious and sacred thing. I mean, that's it. It's like, that's about being with God. Yeah, any other thoughts about the, the synopsis storyline? We'll get new bodies that will not, you know, deteriorate anymore. Yes, yes, that's right. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and, and that's, that's really interesting. And so if you didn't hear, it said we get new bodies that, you know, they'll be renewed, restored. It, what's interesting is that there, there are hundreds of places, especially in the Old Testament, that describe that when the Messiah comes to rule on the planet, that he will actually reverse the effects of sin planet-wide. That, that animals, Isaiah 11, 4 through 6, uh, that animals that normally would eat each other sit in the same barn and peacefully coexist like lions and lambs and wolves and sheep and kids play with snakes. Harvey does that anyway. So, you know, I mean, well, you know, he plays with lions. Their kid is just, yeah, (laughs) you see the kingdom in your, in your child. Um, so, but, but it's amazing. So, so Christ, the presence of Christ will literally reverse the effects of sin on the planet. So, so people will be changed. Death will be mitigated. People will still die in the kingdom. Um, in the new heavens and the new earth, they won't. But anyway, so there, there's, it's, it's a remarkable plot line and, and storyline. But, uh, here, here's a way to, um, let's, no, no, I, I don't know if we've got time for this. So, so let me, let, let's feel, flip to a few passages. I'll, I'll mostly summarize this. In, in John, don't, don't turn there now, but in John 17, uh, we have this remarkable insight uh, it, that we find out what God was doing in eternity past. And what God was doing in eternity past, what the Trinity was doing in eternity past was that they were loving one another They were sharing their glory with one another and they were giving gifts to one another. That's what God was doing in eternity past when there was nothing except him. Loving, sharing glory, exchanging gifts. And the gift exchanged between the persons of the Trinity was what? Or should I say who? What was the gift exchanged? What was given? Us. Us people. It's really, really clear. John 17, 2 and 5 and 9 and 24 and, and chapter 6, John 6 and, and John chapter 10 talks over and over about, Father, those whom you have given to me. So we see that, that the plan of salvation actually begins before creation in eternity past with this Trinitarian gift exchange where the Father gave to his Son these people for whom he would die and, and purchase with his blood. And then at some time, I, I don't know, I mean, how, how, how do you count time before creation? But all of a sudden, lights, camera, action, God speaks and causes the universe to come into existence, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and, and then there begins, thus begins all of human history. Uh, we get to Genesis chapter 3, right? What's the big event that happens in Genesis chapter 3? The fall, right? The virus of sin is unleashed into the world by our first parents. And what's really interesting to me is that um, in, uh, Satan shows up in the form of a snake, so that's pretty wild. And he talks, and that's really wild. 
And, and here's what's, what's funny about that. You know, liberal scholars say, see, that's proof right there that the Bible is mythical. Well, I would argue is that uh, Adam, that would have been just as creepy then as it would be now. Adam should have known better. He saw all the animals, right? He knew that none of them could speak. And the fact that this thing came and started speaking should have alerted him what something is not right here. Um, in fact, I, I, so, I mean, it's really, really profound stuff. But what's really interesting is that in the same, passage in which Satan shows up is his announced destruction and condemnation, right? Do do you remember that? Listen to what it says, Genesis 3, verse 15. This is is a profound passage. You don't have to turn there, but, but here's what it says, Genesis 3, 15. So God shows up to the crime scene, the guilty couple hiding themselves. They've got, you know, uh, leaves over, over their, their private business. And uh, God shows up and announces a series of curses and blessings. One of the blessings is this. He says, I shall put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent, I shall put enmity between you and between the woman, between your seed and between her seed or offspring. He That is the offspring that shall come from the woman. He shall crush you on your head. He shall, you shall strike him on his heel. So already there there is announced, I mean, that doesn't tell us a lot, but it tells us enough. There's going to be some kind of showdown in the future between this descendant of the woman and and the serpent, the the, the descendants of the serpent. Something something is going to happen in the future. He doesn't tell us everything, holds his cards pretty close, but there's going to be some sort of confrontation. But in the confrontation, the devil is going to be dealt a death blow, right? His, His skull is going to be crushed. He will be damaged in some way, wounded, his heel will be struck, but clearly, clearly there's a difference in those, in those wounds. One has their head crushed, the other one has their heel struck. Big diff. But what's interesting is that when you begin to turn throughout history, as the Jews waited throughout history, they began looking, always looking and waiting for the great serpent crusher. Looking and waiting, who is the one that's being described by human history? But then all of a sudden we get to Genesis chapter 11. And what's the big event that happens in Genesis 11? The, the Babel, right? And, and what is the end result? What are some of the end results of Babel? So, so they be, before God showed up and did his thing, uh, describe, the, describe the people for me. They were what? They were one people group. None of that, right? And, and they... Yep, they all spoke the same language. It literally says they had the same, uh, they had the same tongue and the same lip. That's what it's, there wasn't even a different dialect, exactly. Um, and, and then what else? They, they, they had a building project. What did they want? And, and what did they refuse to do? This is actually the core issue of what defines what their mission was. What did they refuse to do? to spread, to multiply. I mean, they were multiplying, but they weren't spreading, right? They were clumping together, and God says, and why was that so wicked? What's that? God told them to scatter. They were God. Exactly. So, so the issue was a glory of God issue at Babel. They didn't want to spread God's glory. They wanted to build a monument to their own glory. That's the issue. So God shows up, scatters them, and get this, nations come out of the deal. Nations came into existence as a result of judgment. That's fascinating to me. And yet, and yet, what do we see? We see 
by the time we get to Revelation that, that for all eternity, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group had been singled out and selected to be purchased by the Son. Isn't that interesting? Nations came into existence as a judgment on sin, and yet what we find out is that God was holding the cards the whole time, and he was planning something profound. That is astonishing, astonishing. Interestingly, Genesis uh, chapter 12, um, and, and there's, there's three really big things about the Bible that, that you have to know. Uh, how many of you like puzzles? Anyone like doing puzzles? I, I, I hate puzzles. Um, and, and the reason why, I, just, I, just don't, I guess I just don't have the, the patience for them. But uh, when, you, uh, when you start doing a puzzle, what, what pieces do you begin with first? The edge pieces, right? And the edge pieces, when you get the edge pieces, then you could do what? You could fill in the middle. You can make sense out of the thing as a whole, right? What I'm about to give you are the edge pieces of the Bible. And what the edge pieces are, are covenants. In other words, you get these, you get your Bibles, and when you get your Bibles, then and only then can you make, begin to make sense out of doctrines like election. And the reason why I'm doing like this paraphrastic, kind of a scenic route approach to the doctrine of election is that I find that when you f- unfold the plan of salvation as a whole, it really deflates, um, it really deflates people's defenses when it, when it comes to election. All of a sudden, when you can see election in the context of this grand drama of salvation, you can go, oh, it doesn't really feel that arbitrary. All of a sudden, it makes sense. But there are uh, there are a handful of covenants in, in the Bible, and they're, they're very important. I believe that covenant is probably one of the most important theological words in the entire Bible. But what is the first covenant in the Bible that we come across? What, what do we see? The covenant made with, with Noah, right? Yep, so there's the Noahic covenant. Good. What's next? Yeah, the, uh, the Abrahamic, yes, very, yep, yep, that, but you're, you're right, that's coming up, okay, you said it, then the Mosaic Covenant, okay, what's next? The, the Davidic Covenant, absolutely, and then the New Covenant, the New Covenant. Now, here is what is so profound, is that, we'll, we'll put this one in its kind of own category, um, and we'll just deal with mostly these. Here's the thing. Um, the three covenants here, um, what makes them unique and different from the Mosaic covenant is that these covenants are what's known as unconditional covenants. You see, this one had some strings attached. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, it ain't going to go well for you. It's going to go really, really bad for you. And did it go bad for Israel? Golly. There are 11 million Jews not in Israel. No, no. Uh, 11 million Jews total. There are 7 million Jews not in Israel because they did not obey the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, so it's, there's more Jews outside of Israel than there are in Israel. And it's because of they didn't do that. But the thing about these is that they are unconditional, no strings attached. I mean, there were still obligations to obey and be God's people. But, but the difference between these is that these are flat out gonna happen. Like, period. God stakes his very reputation on the fulfillment of these covenants. And what is promised in this covenant? Remember what God promises? Yes, very good. So included in this is land. What else? 
Oh, and let me ask you this. How long would they get the land? Forever. Ad olam. So, which is the Hebrew word for forever, right? So that's repeated again and again and again. You will have this ad olam. Forever you will have this. Okay, so this is a, this is a non-negotiable thing. What else was promised? Descendants, right? So Abraham, here's, the, here's Abraham, this nomad, right? This nobody, and, and, he, and he says, you will be the father of many nations. You will be a distinct people group on the planet. In Genesis chapter 17, he says, kings will come from your line. Meaning what? Meaning that Abraham's descendants would be influencers over human history. This is a really big deal. There's nobody. And, and out of his line would, would come the most unbelievable thing. So he would have descendants. Is it with an A? Okay. Spell check always helps me. Okay, and then what else? Blessing. Blessing, right? So there's some, there's some unnamed blessing, but actually what's interesting is that Genesis 12, verse 3, says that that blessing would go to who? Who does it say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, our English Bibles say uh, nations, but... Uh, the Hebrew says, kol mishpachot ha'aretz. That word mishpachot, that refers to like clans, tribes, really distinct ethno-linguistic people groups. So he's talking about not just like geograph- geopolitical states, he's talking about tribes of people, that this blessing, whatever it is, would go to the mish. Why am, I, why am I writing this? I don't know. Mishpachot. Okay. There it is. To, to go to clans, tribes, nations, ethno-linguistic people groups. Okay. Tell me about the Davidic covenant. We're, we're, almost, we're almost done here. Davidic covenant. A descendant of David will always be on the throne. In fact, let's look at that. Second uh, Samuel 7. This is, this is worth our time here. Second Samuel 7. And more or less begins in verse. Uh, uh, it will uh, more or less begins in verse eight, but we'll look at just verses twelve and thirteen. So it says, uh, "When your days shall be full." I'm in verse 12, chapter, uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days shall be full and you shall lie down with your fathers, then I shall raise up your offspring after you. That, here's, what's, here's what's interesting about that word offspring. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, he uses the word offspring. Here's what's really cool about that is that that word is the exact same word used in Genesis three, fifteen, when he says, uh, I shall cause enmity to become between your offspring and his offspring or her offspring, and he, the offspring, shall crush you on the head. So the zarah in the Hebrew, the, the, the seed, the offspring, the exact same word used here, there's going to be this offspring who will come from the line of David. 
So I shall raise up your descendant after you who shall come forth from your, I don't know what the English says, but the Hebrew is loins. <laughs> I just feel kind of uncomfortable using that word. And I shall establish uh, his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I shall establish the throne of his kingdom. Get this, ad olam, same exact construction as in Genesis uh, chapter 12. Ad olam, forever, which, which I think implies that whoever this seed offspring is going to be, he is going to be deity, an eternal king who reigns forever. I mean, what a promise. This is also found in Psalm 89 as well. That's a, that's a biggie. Uh, okay, and then, did we even talk about, oh yeah, so an eternal king, right? Eternal king and kingdom. Okay, what else? What else is promised? Anything else promised here? I mean, there's probably more things. Anything else you can think of with the Davidic? So put the pieces together. You've got a land, you've got a people, you've got blessings, not just to Jews, but Jews are the instrument through whom the blessing comes to all the nations. Oh, and look at this. You have a king and a kingdom ruling this thing forever. This is shaping up to be a pretty dope plan. Okay, now the new covenant. Tell me about the new covenant. What do we have there? What, what, what is included in this bad boy? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, good. So, why, why don't we just look at, um, so Jeremiah 31 is a good one, but look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, turn there if you would, and this is where God unfolds the new covenant. And some of the promises of the new covenant are really specific to Israel, like land promises, things like that, but some of the things he says are, are salvation promises that overflow the banks of Israel and, and begin to give us some sort of indication of what this blessing described over here actually is. So Ezekiel 36, beginning in, we'll start in verse uh, 23. Um, now 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says uh, Adonai, Yahweh, uh, thus says the Lord God, I think that's what your, your Bible say, uh, it is not for your sake uh, that I am doing this for the house of Israel, uh, but rather for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. And I shall sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which you profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, declares uh, Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God, when I am sanctified among you before their eyes. Verse 24. And I shall take you from the nations, and I shall gather you from the lands, and I shall bring you to your land. Your land. I shall bring you to your land. Abrahamic. They, they would have thought that. Your land. They would have also, land promises were included in the Davidic, too. Uh, okay, uh, verse 25. Now listen carefully. I shall sprinkle on you with clean water and you shall be clean from all of your, uh, what's the word? Uh, Uncleanness. Okay, thanks. And from all of your uh, idolatries, I shall cleanse you. And I shall give to you a new 
heart and a new spirit I shall put in your midst and I shall take the heart of stone from your flesh and I shall give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I shall put my spirit within you and I shall cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Unbelievable. So what we have here is unfolding is not just a you know, kind of political, military state. What we have here is a gathering of former rebels with regenerated, renewed, redeemed hearts. This has not happened to Israel as a whole. There hasn't been a collective like gathering from the nations and and giving them a new heart. Jews are almost pretty much as hostile as Muslims. I mean, you, should, you could YouTube videos of, of uh, people preaching in Jerusalem and stones and spitting and mockery, hostile, hostile stuff. So what we have here, this whole plan unfolding, and then what we begin to, we get a glimpse with the new covenant of, I think I'm getting an idea what the blessing is. I think I'm getting an idea. It's salvation blessing. Salvation blessing, because listen, you don't have to turn there, but listen to Isaiah 49, Verse 6, it's Trinitarian dialogue. It's, it's, the, it's Yahweh speaking to the servant. You know, in, in Isaiah, there, there's all this, uh, there's the servant that keeps being spoken about. The servant will come and he will, he will die for people and the servant will come and he will be the king. Listen to what it says. Here's what Yahweh says to the servant. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Uh, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. But I shall make you a light of the nations to bring my salvation to the end of the earth. There it is. There it is. What's revealed as, as time goes on is that the, the blessing through the Jewish people to the very ends of the earth would be the blessings of salvation, which is articulated and described in the new covenant. Yeah. Isaiah 49, verse 6. But here's, what, here's what's really interesting. Oh, geez, Wilka. Um, you know, you, you, you have... Remember that whole thing? What, what is that refrain in, in Kings that we, or in the book of Judges that we keep seeing? I kind of gave it away there a little bit. But what is that refrain that we see about four times in the book that, that alerts us that something is wrong? What does it keep saying? There was no king. There was no king in Israel. You see, there's this interesting thing in the Old Testament that early on it gives us this indication that like there's got to be a king. There, there's got to be a king. A king will come and make things right. Because do you remember what Genesis 49, 9 and 10 describes? One will come from Judah and the scepter will not depart from him and to him will be the obedience of the Amim, the peoples, plural. Genesis 49 describes the king from Judah. And then Deuteronomy 17 says, here is the ideal king. And guess what? No one in history matched up with the description of the king in Deuteronomy 17. They were all flops, all of them, total downers, total disappointments. But there will be one who comes. See, the whole, this, this offspring, this one to come from the Davidic line, he is the one for whom we are waiting. It's all pointing to the arrival of the king. We see him in Psalm 2, Right? Uh, in Hebrew, it talks about uh, the Mashiach, the, the Messiah in Psalm 2. We, we see 
uh, this king to come, and we see him especially in places like Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Listen to this. Listen to Daniel 17, 7, thir- uh, 13, and 14. Um, and, and tell me if this doesn't pull together all of the themes, nearly all the themes that we have here. Okay, where is Daniel? In, uh, it's different order in the Hebrew. Uh, Esther, Daniel, there it is. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I saw in the visions of the night, this is a vision that Daniel was having, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he was presented before him, And to him was given dominion, majesty, and a kingdom. And all the peoples, nations, and tongues shall serve him. His dominion is a dominion literally of eternity. Same, it's the Aramaic, but it's the same same word. A dominion of eternity. And his kingdom shall not pass away. uh, And his dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel 7, 13, 14 pulls all of it together and shows us that, okay, all of human history is culminating towards a kingdom stationed in Jerusalem with this king ruling all things and through the people of Israel, blessing coming to the very ends of the earth. Here is my point in, in telling you all this. But I think this doesn't have anything to do with the doctrines of grace. It has everything to do with the doctrines of grace. I just gave you the, the backdrop, the tapestry that makes the doctrines of grace make sense. My point is very simply this. Election explains how nations are worshiping the king in the end. That's what election does. Or you could put it this way. You've got the Trinity over here. You've got the Trinity over here. But the difference is you have nations worshiping the Trinity. Election explains how the nations got there. That's what this is about. Okay, so I'll call it quits there. That's, that's a ton of material. And uh, somehow, by a miracle, we will cover election all in one shot next time and try to start total depravity. Ha! Uh, Here's the thing, though. The next session is not till July 14th. So uh, I'm trying to avoid... uh, colliding with uh, Rich's small group. So that's going to go on the second and fourth Sundays. His is on the first and third. Um, so the next session will be July 14th. I know that's kind of a ways away. Sorry about that. But uh, that's, that's what this is going to look like. Okay? Uh, any, any questions, if you dare? Oh, oh, hey, I got a question. Hey, sweet! Uh, do the doctrines of grace preclude free will? Okay, I'll go ahead and answer this. You cool with this? I'll answer it. You can leave if you need to. Uh, do the doctrines of grace preclude, that means rule out free will? Uh, and the answer is, it's good that we talk about this. I, I didn't, I, I mean, I'm a schmuck. I should have just talked explicitly about uh, uh, free will during the last seminar I did. Here's the thing about free will. Um, it all depends on how you define it. It all depends on how you define free will. You see, if you mean by free will that man has a kind of sovereign, autonomous freedom that that is so powerful that not even God can intervene, that he just sort of has to wait with his hands tied until you do something and then he makes the best of whatever mess you make and he overcomes and comes through. If that's what you mean, that, that, that people have a sovereign autonomous power outside of even God, then no, that's not in the Bible. That's, that's not free will. 
Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's just not a concept that, that the Bible ever describes. Now, if by free will you mean that people have one, make, people make actual, real choices out of the overflow of who they are, conscious choices based out of, out of the reality of who they are and that they have real accountability and responsibility, then yes, yes. If you want to call it free will, fine. I think responsibility and accountability are, are better words for that. But if, if free will is helpful for you, I mean, it's again, free will only in the sense that we make act, active conscious choices. But, but, you just have to live with the reality that the Bible says that everything was predetermined by God. But he is sovereign in such a way that does not minimize any personal responsibility or accountability. You just got to live there. If you're going to deal honestly with your Bibles, you, have to, you just have to go, well, Proverbs 16.33 says that every roll of the dice is determined by God. Psalm 16.9, or Proverbs 16.9, says that I make decisions, but God directs my steps. So, I mean, we just have to, you just have to live there. Um, so, in answer to the question, no, the doctrines of grace work perfectly with personal responsibility and accountability. Perfectly. It's perfectly compatible because God is sovereign in such a way that does not minimize anyone's personal responsibility or accountability at all. So it's a a great question and and we've got to ask. It all, again, it all depends on how you define what free will is. Okay, I hope that's helpful. If not, come, come talk to me after. All right, well, thank you, guys. We'll, we'll leave it there. Um, you, are, you are free to go. Uh, you have some, some thinking to do, some stuff to chew on, and we will launch on July 14th, okay? Thank you so much.